I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so thrilled to be talking today to Marie-Helene Bertino, who is the author of 2 AM at the Cat's Pajamas, and the story collection Safe as Houses. Her latest novel is called Parakeet. And I just, it blew me away. Oh, well, that's so nice. Thank you. It's, it's hard to talk about, I've, I've found. <laughs> because yes. so much of it is in the being inside a character whose mind wanders a lot and who says really funny, insightful things about crazy stuff all the time. That's true. I did not write a book that is easy to summarize or articulate. <laughs> and as the as I've been lucky enough to have reviews come out, I actually don't envy the job of the reviewer whose job it is to, to do so. So I just give them a big hand for even trying. <laughs> <laughs> but loosely, loosely, mm -hmm. it's about a bride the week before her wedding. Mm -hmm. And I think at some point in the book, you say, if you don't have an existential crisis the week before your <laughs> wedding, then who even are you? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, you're newly engaged, aren't you? I, I'm married, but I, I, oh. I, do, <laughs> I certainly feel like people are still deeply, deeply uncomfortable with a bride who is not traditionally excited, like it, you know, not even yes. about um, ambiguity about the your partner, because I love my husband very much, but like <laughs> having everybody say it's like your best day, <laughs> like it's, it's mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, it sets up an expectation that can be very hard for some of us to to live up to. And that is very much something I wanted to deconstruct in Parakeet, just that how many of these watershed moments for those of us who live a, a bit more unconventionally 
according to the majority, I guess, um, how, mu how many of these watershed moments don't feel the way they're, in quotes, supposed to feel, and how that's perfectly okay. I mean, you should have ambivalent feelings about a, a commitment that big. And, and also, I, it said ex kind of explicitly in the book, you know, anything worth its salt should be able to stand up to rigorous questioning. Mm. And, and I do feel like we allow brides to be stressed out, but only in specific ways. We want to see them worried about the flowers. Pick up the flowers. Yes. And the bride yes. has no interest in the flowers in this novel. No. The bride has no interest in a lot of the uh, accoutrement of matrimony. <laughs> it's true. And we also want to see the bride get worked up about the dress. I mean, there are yes. whole TV shows, practically whole television channels mm. that are are devoted to that kind of bridal mania and and so in the first chapter this is not giving anything away um the bride's grandmother in the form of a parakeet craps all over her wedding gown <laughs> yes <laughs> literally and metaphorically shits all over her wedding day yes it is true <laughs> yes and so it takes that out of contention immediately like you are going to think about my warning and you are going to do my bidding if it's the last thing you do and or else. And that yeah. was the first indication that her life was going to slowly come apart bit by bit. And the warning is basically don't marry this dude and go and find your strange. Yeah. Yeah. Go and find your estranged sibling. Yes. And so right away, we know that this isn't going to be a realist novel. <laughs> <laughs> right in the first sentence, I hope. Yeah. You know what you're getting into. You know in the hot water you're about to get into. <laughs> Talk about writing about the absurd or the surreal and um, how to incorporate that into a plot that is very well structured. I would say that a surreal, I mean, for my intents and purposes, as I am constructing things like this, I am, I, I do follow the character and the character's desire. So it's not premise first, necessarily. Mm -hmm. I start with the idea of a bride and a very unconventional, ethnically ambiguous, injured, troubled, damaged bride. And then I follow where she goes. And the warning of the grandmother, you know, if it were just a parakeet coming as like a gimmick or a trick, it wouldn't work as well on the emotional level. And right. I, I find that surrealism and magic realism, fabulism, whichever word you like, works best when the supernatural element is implicated on the emotional level. So the parakeet is not only a parakeet. The parakeet is an emotional reckoning. You know, her come to Jesus moment, it is very much intrinsically linked with her turning away from her authentic self. And, and you, you do such a good job of kind of, of explaining how trauma uh, is an upheaval of narrative. 
that it that it's happening all the time that it causes mm -hmm. the uh narrator to become unreliable mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. tell me about using okay. the structure of a novel to talk about what trauma does can do to us sure well, I was a biographer of people with traumatic brain injury, and I do feel in a way that I've, um, and I was visited by my grandmother in the form of a parakeet the night before my wedding. So this is actually a memoir. <laughs> this is totally nonfiction, <laughs> as most of my work is. This is totally nonfiction. Um, but yeah, I think that trauma can only work in a text if, you know, you're representing, again, it in an emotionally and linguistically dignified way. And I guess that is to say, you know, in my work with people who were really seriously injured, I would listen to their stories, I would record their stories, I would transcribe them, and then I would have to use their story and negotiate it into a narrative to tell a jury in court in order for the jury to rule in their favor and give them a settlement that could pay their medical bills. So the narrative was very much um, for a very specific purpose. And in a novel, obviously, you can play around with moments of deep violence and catharsis. And so I essentially, again, just like made the metaphorical literal and in the scene, the eponymous chapter where we find out what really happened to her in this really brutal scene, I echoed what kind of happens to us when we are in crisis. Our senses kind of go to their own corners and they, and they um, localize and become these autonomous things that we can almost see from afar. And so she literally is aware of her own hearing from a distance. And so what she hears is being layered in to what is happening to her on the physical level. Hmm. I mean, so I had no idea that that, that part of the book was uh, <laughs> autobiographical. And mm -hmm. so tell me more about working with people with brain injuries. Like, so one of the... Um, books that the bride said she was recommended by her boss was a book called the reptilian brain yes is that something that yes. is that a metaphor that you had heard on your own <laughs> that is i believe that's an actual book that i was given when i started that job that was the first time i had ever heard of something called the reptilian brain so everything i describe about reptiles is sourced from that book and, and other training I received in that position. Yeah. So, so how, how are, how are um, injured <laughs> people like reptiles? Do you know, I never quite figured it out. I actually found the comparison <laughs> to be, to be very, to, to be, to be too simple and to be right. too reductive. I think essentially the idea was reptiles are just wriggling it and just want everything. They want all the right things. They want to eat. They want to, they want to, they just want everything at all. They want what you have. They want 
<laughs> everything on earth. They're just completely motivated by, by enormous desire only. And their biggest fears are immobility and isolation. And so that, I mean, I definitely found that that kind of tracked anecdotally throughout my, my uh, interviews. But right. I, I, I don't know. Humans are complicated and they don't <laughs> always behave the way you think they will. Thank God. Yes. And uh, in the book as well, <laughs> characters do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> For sure. For sure. <laughs> and then like, there's a chapter in which the bride wakes up in her mother's body or, or mind. Um, mm -hmm. And her sibling says that sooner or later, every woman wakes up and realizes she is her mother, which is mm -hmm. such a like metamorphosis, <laughs> Kafkan nightmare. <laughs> yes. So a few things were happening in that chapter for me, and I'm not going to ask you if you've ever had that that brutal, <laughs> rude awakening. Um, but I, I, I find it happens more and more every day. Thankfully, my mom is like one of the best people on the planet, so same I would same. be lucky yes. if I grow toward her. God, I hope I am. I will actually never be as lovely as she is. Um, that was a way of. A, introducing us to the mother, mm -hmm. because up until that point, the mother is developed in absentia, and she debatably still is in that chapter because she's there but not really there. Right. Um, a way of literally getting her closer to her mother, who she is estranged from. Um, and it's also a way for me as the writer of surrealist fiction to, in a way, like give alms to the elder, you know, to say, I know who I'm in conversation with. Right. I'm in conversation with Kafka and all of the other lovely weirdos who mess with the laws of physics in their work. Mm -hmm. And so it, it felt like invoking a grandfather spirit in a way and to, and to really like make, show like wear my influences on my sleeve in a way and mm -hmm. play with it and upend it. When I thought of the idea, I thought of the line first, you know, that, this famous line, um, Gregor Samsa woke from troubled dreams to discover he had turned into a, when I thought of using the syntax of that line, but had the last part be her mother, I was like, oh, certainly someone has done that. Like certainly someone has already done that. And I Google searched and I'm like, nobody has used <laughs> the metamorphosis to, to, to do that, to say that they've turned into their mother. As far as I know, no one has. So I was, I was happy that I could kind of have fun with it. So fun. <laughs> this episode of the Maris Review is brought to you by the novel You Exist Too Much by Zaina Arafat, out now from Catapult. For fans of Garth Greenwell and Wecky Wang, a startling debut novel of desire and doubleness following the life of a young Palestinian-American woman caught between cultural, religious, and sexual identities. On a hot day in Bethlehem, a 12-year-old Palestinian-American girl is yelled at by a group of men outside the Church of the Nativity. She's exposed her legs in a biblical city, an act they deem forbidden, and their judgment will echo on through her adolescence. 
When our narrator finally admits to her mother that she is queer, her mother's response only intensifies a sense of shame. You exist too much, she tells her daughter. Told in vignettes that flash between the US and the Middle East, from New York to Jordan, Lebanon, and Palestine, Zaina Arafat's debut novel traces her protagonist's progress from blushing teen to sought-after DJ and aspiring writer. In Brooklyn, she moves into an apartment with her first serious girlfriend and tries to content herself with their comfortable relationship. But soon, her longings, so closely hidden during her teenage years, explode out into reckless romantic encounters and obsessions with other people. Her desire to thwart her own destructive impulses will eventually lead her to The Ledge, an unconventional treatment center that identifies her affliction as love addiction. In this strange and closed society, she will start to consider the unnerving similarities between her own internal traumas and divisions and those of the places that have formed her. Tell me about the bride and her travels because she is on the go both like physically and in her mind she she's never still basically i know i noticed that you said that at the beginning that's so interesting i never i don't think i consider that but you're right she really is talk about mobility she really is super nimble and mobile in her in her thinking i feel like it's her only way of I think she's scurrying around because she knows that she's trapped. She's like mentally trying to figure out a way out, even if she doesn't realize yet that she wants out consciously. I think that's a way of her figuring out the world. And it's, it's, it struck me because she's supposed to be at this hotel on Long Island, on Long Island. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, that's a point of contention in the book and in the world. <laughs> um, and yet she is able to get to all of these other parts of, of Manhattan and Brooklyn and uh, other parts, I guess is how we say. And that just seems to me like, again, it's, it's the inversion of um, what we expect from a bride, but like, mm -hmm. I, I, I would imagine she'd be chilling out, <laughs> mm -hmm. drinking Bloody Marys, getting her manicures. And, you know. Yes, that's so funny and true because that was one of the ways I did upend the idea of what we would think the week before a wedding would be, mm -hmm. especially the night she spends where she's out until dawn with a, a company of actors yeah. in the cloisters. And I remember thinking, no way most brides would stay out all night mm -hmm. the week before. Like, that's really, like, she's really self-sabotaging here. Mm -hmm. And I, I liked that because I felt like that is what she particularly would do in search of this sibling, in search of this closeness that she's been missing. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. And it's so, I, I love that scene because it it takes it to another level of the idea of an out-of-body experience um that the bride is watching a play that is based on her experience so she is watching her her life 
or mm-hmm. her, her sibling's interpretation of her life unfold and then gets to interact with with the people playing her family. <laughs> right. And three versions of herself too. Yeah. So again, I was like, I was playing with the idea of this refraction of image and identity. So in the beginning of the, toward the beginning of the novel, she's in that mercurial elevator at the end and she's looking into the mirror and you know how you can look into a mirror and see like endless versions of yourself. So she does that. And then for the rest of the novel, I just represent those endless images in all these different ways. And the play was the literal way of her. It was like Luna at 14, Luna at 17, Luna at 25 was what she's called in the play. Mm -hmm. And she gets to interact with herself at these different ages and just hates, hates, hates the Luna that is present day. Like Luna that is essentially supposed to be her in the moment, hmm, which I also thought would probably her. happen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have no idea. <laughs> what could that possibly mean? <laughs> I'll let you. I'll let you figure out. Figure that out, Maris. You're okay. much more articulate than I am. <laughs> the idea that the week before the wedding has all sorts of stresses that any reader would be familiar with in some way. And then your book has almost none of it. Tell me about, I don't scheduling her adventures, the bride's adventures. Is, are they adventures? They're, they're more like a... I, I'm perfectly oops. happy to, to call them adventures or episodes even. Episodes. I think that um, at one point, so I wrote the novel. Mm-hmm. I was probably a few versions into the novel before I realized, oh, I have to sketch this week out. I just have to say, okay, it starts on Sunday, goes to Saturday. And, and, that, and so I outlined after the fact. I scheduled her week after I wrote a few versions of the novel when I realized I did have to reckon with the idea of, okay, the rehearsal dinner would be now. She'd have to get the bouquet here. <laughs> At this point, she would need to have a dress. So eventually I did. I did use that as a help. And tell me about revealing just enough at just the right moment to, to make the narrative click. Like you, you take all of these different episodes or escapades or adventures or whatever you <laughs> call them. And slowly you reveal why all of these things have so much significance. Mm -hmm. That was a bit of trial and error and a bit of intuition. I would say 50% of each. (laughs) And also a little bit of, I don't know why, but three quarters of the way through anything is normally when revelatory things are revealed. I find (laughs) in movies, maybe I'm basing that on films, but I thought that was a nice place to position the, the, the thing with the capital T that is behind the play and behind her uh, disassociation from her life. It's like, we don't realize it, but we have been reading a kind of existential mystery this entire time. Oh good. I'm glad to hear you say that again. I don't know how to talk about it without giving too much away. (laughs) Well, thank you for that consideration. But 
for the parts that we're not talking about, um, you handle them beautifully. <laughs> and you. so everyone should just read Parakeet is what I'm trying to say. Thank um, you so much. I think you're, you're talking about a trans character? Yes. Yes. Okay. Lovely. Um, yes. A lot of consideration went into Simone. Simone showed up early in the process and took over. She just absolutely said, oh, did you think I was a minor character? Ha ha ha. <laughs> and I'm also kind of a sucker for a character coming late into, in a story who you have really, when you, at which time you realize, oh, this whole thing has been in preparation for this, of this for character. That. Like you've just heard little glimpses, dribs and drabs about this character almost in the periphery of your reader's ear. And then suddenly that character shows up and you're like, oh, I understand. <laughs> yeah. And so I was, I've always been a sucker for that kind of story. So it was my, it was great fun to finally try it out. <laughs> so good. Um, Marie, tell me what you've been reading, what you recommend. Yes, I would love to. Yay. So Maris, I don't know if you know this, but we are in a global pandemic. <laughs> no yes we are and then yeah. right after that global uh, right after no it's still it's, it's ongoing um we are also in this acute acutely profound moment for race yeah. all over america and the world so yes. you know it's a very it's a very interesting time to be putting out a book and so mm -hmm. what i i would love to talk to you about are the books of my cohort and friends that have been coming out in this moment, I have followed the lead of the absolutely lovely, wonderful lead of Rebecca Dinerstein Knight, whose book Hex came out right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. Of everything, of, of us all sheltering in place. And she, her book Hex is the wildest, most creative, funny, mm -hmm. real, true story about a mentor-mentee relationship and just how, and just everything. And watching her do her events on zoom that were pivoted that pivoted and were rescheduled on a moment's notice was just like watching a masterclass in grace so yeah. hex everybody go support this lovely human um tracy o'neill's quotients mm -hmm. she launched a few weeks ago and had one of the smartest Q and A's I've ever seen, and everyone was saying the same thing in the comments. Like I was like, "Oh my God, how can I launch after Tracy? She is the smartest human on earth." Um, quotients and quotients is very much a reflection of Tracy's big, beautiful, brilliant mind. So I could I can't recommend that enough. I'm looking at my shelves right now. Oh, um, these ghosts are family by Maisie Card. Intergenerational family story, deeply, deeply wrought, lovely, touching, moving, um, also came out in the pandemic, an author who deserves and, and is a debut. So, I mean, for those of us who have, have been lucky enough to already have a book on our belts, that's one thing, but the debut authors who are coming out now, yeah. I just, I feel for uh, Mega Majumdar, yes. who's a burning just came out yesterday, and Britt Bennett, have you, I, I see you're, you're making a face like, oh, love it, love it so much. Love it, love it, love it so much. And mm -hmm. for, for Mega in particular, um, it is 
so thrilling to at least see that both James Wood and Book mm -hmm. of the Month want to, want to engage in her work. And I think that's so cool. Knocking them down is what she's doing one by one. And I, you know, and I hope it more than makes up for the lack of like physical contact that she won't be able to enjoy now. I mean, it's temporary. Eventually she will do all of us will do readings again and hopefully be in the same room with a bunch of cheap so. sugary wine, yes. you know, <laughs> again, and we will love Please. it. Every there will be more hugging. Um, <laughs> I, I'm hoping, I don't know, maybe there will be a big paperback tour for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. I mean, we're going to take whatever excuse we can yes. to, to celebrate, I think, after this. My you friend, get a do-over. You get it. I, <laughs> that's lovely. I would like that. My friend Meekin Armstrong tweeted, um, I, I can't believe how much I miss all the crappy literary parties. Like, mm -hmm. please take too long at the bike. Please overcharge <laughs> yeah. me for a shot of whiskey. And I was like, oh, you're making me so nostalgic. <laughs> please make me feel crushed by the weight of too many people around me. Yes, exactly. All of them please ask me. <laughs> <laughs> please ask me how to write a cover letter. Please. Yes. Please tell me your problematic uh, opinions about race on your faculty, even. <laughs> oh, God. Although that's always a joy to argue. I always have fun arguing those people. <laughs> My goodness. Well, I hope we are in the same room soon. Um, I too. love Parakeet, though, so everybody should read it, and, and one day we will all hug, and it'll be wonderful. Group hug Group across hug. the world. Thank you, Marie. Thank you, Maris. You're the best. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.